On today's show, I'm talking to Jake Carls, co-founder of Midday Squares. Now, Midday Squares is basically a social media brand that happens to sell chocolates, and those chocolates are damn good. They're damn good, and Jake Carls is good. He's got a lot of insights to share. We're gonna talk about how to build a physical product food company in 2023, the path to getting to 30 million in revenue, then getting to 100 million and a billion in revenue, which Jake and his team are gonna document along the way. You might see them in a Netflix series before too long. We're gonna talk about using social media content to build the brand and a very scary letter that they got from Hershey's and how they turned it into social media gold. That's all coming up after this. Before we get to it, if you're loving the show, make sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review and tell your friends. That is all I ask. Here is Jake Carls. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. All right, cool. Jake, welcome to the show. Oh, so why don't you give us a quick background on Midday Squares and, and how it all got started and we'll go from there. Yeah, dude. So thanks for having me, John. Midday Squares is a chocolate bar company and the mission we had was to eventually build a modern day Hershey's. So we always like to think about what would Hershey's look like if it started in you know 2023, let's call it. That's what we're trying to create. We're trying to be the new version of how people consume chocolate and how they consume brand, actually, which is a big saying. So my sister, my brother, and I started this business in August 2018. We launched it, and the idea was to give people an indulgence for the afternoon, but also something that was better for you, clean label, clean ingredients, all that good stuff and kept you full for about three to four hours. So we added the function, we added the indulgence, and then we took a different approach in terms of how we grow the business because the food and beverage space is saturated with 12 big companies that own 80% of the grocery store. And it's very hard to win across the 40,000 products in the store. So we took a very media first driven angle. And what that meant was we basically document everything. We document the entire journey of how we build this company, good, bad, ugly, filming from day one up until now and hopefully for the lifetime of the business. And the goal is just to get the customer at least on the journey with us. And what I mean by that is not to just watch it, but actually feel part of it. So when they do go to the grocery store, they don't just see a chocolate bar out of the 40,000 products on the shelf. They actually see something that they care about, something that means a lot to them and a brand that they actually are friends with. And that was the unique approach we took. And fast forward four and a half years till today, one of the number one selling bars in our category in the United States and, and in Canada as well, actually. And um, we're a team of 65. We built our fully automated chocolate factory here in Montreal, Canada. And yeah, the goal is, again, let's build this thing to hopefully a unicorn business. And why did you pick chocolate? Oh, chocolate. First of all, my brother-in-law and my sister are deep foodies and they love chocolate. So they were actually eating chocolate every day at like 2 p.m. For me, I'm actually allergic to peanuts and nuts, so I can't have some of our products, which is sad. But Chocolate's also $142 billion a year just industry. So it's one of the largest snacking sets. And for us, we like to look at saturated markets and find an innovation within that saturation. Got it. And so did you guys start this out? Like, did you have backgrounds in entrepreneurship or had you always been young hustlers? Or this was like your first go? Oh, yeah. So all three of us have been entrepreneurs for 10 years 
combined each, I'd say. So my sister was had a fashion business that she was actually designing clothes and doing all the manufacturing for it. My brother-in-law had um, a couple of businesses, but one of the successful ones was he was a software engineer and he sold an ad tech company. So he actually earned some some capital to actually invest in midday squares for that. And then for me, I had two businesses prior to this. I was first was an outdoor fitness boot camp. So every summer after college, I would basically train people outside because the weather is so bad in Canada. So in the summer, everyone wants to be outside. And I had a very successful business. You know, I had four people working with me. And we were training about 180 clients a summer and it was a very good cash business. And so I closed that because of passion. I lost passion for fitness after three years. And then the second business I actually went bankrupt on, it was a clothing business. And I was throwing parties on college campuses across Canada and then trying to sell clothing on the campus. Anyways, very good storytelling business, but very bad at operations, in my opinion. And then we all joined forces in 2018 to launch this. So none of us came from food, but we all had this entrepreneurial background already in us and this drive to build something really big. Yeah, I feel like every entrepreneurial college kid wants to start a college business. There's like the college events business, there's find a roommate business, there's all, all, all that kind of stuff. So you, it says here that you launched on Crunchbase. It says you, uh, you raised $8.8 million. I'm kind of curious to understand how you actually funded this thing. Because this sounds like a really capital-intensive company. So what were the early days like? So we've raised a lot of money to date venture-wise. Today, I think it's about $17 million. And the reason for that investment was for growth. It wasn't for the manufacturing. Manufacturing, we raised debt from our government to help us build our factory here in Quebec. So the Quebec government debt financed you know, our machinery and our infrastructure for, to create more jobs, let's call it, in the region. And um, at the beginning, we each put about $150,000 in. So total of 450 k That was the initial investment to show that we have product market fit. And the idea was to scale up some manufacturing. So not build the factory, but scale it up in terms of getting it to a couple, you know, our first year goal was $250,000 in revenue. And the second reason for that money was to invest in the media and actually build out that media arm of the company. Because we believe that that was a big bet on content being, you know, the forefront of the future of marketing, in our opinion. And it was, or it is. And uh, yeah, so we got it. We started that 450K and then we raised money after our first year. We raised about 2.5 million US from Boulder Food Group, which is a venture capital fund out in Colorado, who's specifically dedicated to food. And their their interest for us was not that we had the highest sales, but it was because they saw an innovation. They saw that we were taking a different approach also to the way we communicate with our consumers. So they were like, hey, this company's either going to really work well or really fail. And yeah, to date, they've still been an investor in our company. And you know we've raised all these from other funds as well. But um, that's where the funding came. And I think the reason why we are able to fundraise a lot easier, and I say this with respect to all the brands, is because we build out loud. We kind of took like an Elon Musk approach in terms of sharing everything. And what that does is it creates this transparent, this radical transparency that you as an investor see this and you're like, oh, I want to talk to this company or I hate this company and I don't even want to be associated with them. That way there's no cold introductions. It's all warm when it happens. And it's like they already know us before we even pitch them on what we need, right? So I think that that approach has helped us in terms of the fundraising and fandom building component. And I think that um, a lot more brands should take that approach, not necessarily to the extreme, but at least start to inch into that if they're trying to raise some money, because it allows you to get you know on a playing field with a lot more investors in a quicker time. Yeah. Content puts fuel on the fire. So I want to talk about that. Let's start at the beginning though of the content piece. So how fundamental was your content arm to the initial launch? Did that sort of come on day one? Was that a day 30 kind of thing? 
so yeah, so the day one, it was just the three of us, my sister, my brother-in-law and I, and I told them, I said, guys, if we're going to build this business, let's just take out a camera. Let's film everything. Like the arguments, the, the, how we make the product, you know, delivering the product, meeting our first retailer, all these exciting moments and sad moments and just put it out there. So there's no media arm. It was just us doing it. Then at about, I think two months in, it was, we were like, Hey, I can't keep filming. The filming was getting really hard to also operate. So we actually hired our first person. And that first person was a videographer and she did videographer and editing. So she did two roles in one. It was a lot of work, actually too much work. And we've separated that now, but that, that person, basically Nadia, she was great. She film, edit, film, edit, nonstop content, day-to-day content, just going up every single day. And it was, we focused on building the business. She focused on capturing. And I think that has evolved into a, you know, a larger team now, but the team approaches things very differently. It's not posting everything like unfiltered, raw, raw, raw. There's editing, there's, there's, there's storytelling to an arc and all that stuff. It's still very real, not acting and stuff like that, but more strategic on how we put out the content. But again, we, we treat our company like two companies. It's under one roof, but it's a media arm. And then it's a chocolate manufacturer. Okay. So when you say media arm and chocolate manufacturer, there, there are other companies that, that have taken this model. Very few that have, that have done it super well and certainly as well as you guys. But what do you think? What muscle are you using to get that right? Because it sort of feels like a lot of companies say like, oh yeah, you have to build your own media company. You, know, you have to have your own content studio. And most of them just suck. So what do you think made you do it right from day one? Or maybe it wasn't right from day one? I think... The fact that the three of us signed off our lives day one, meaning that everything was on the table, like no privacy. I think that allowed us to build characters that were relatable to people. And when we started capturing that content, we started to see that people didn't care to hear that our product was vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, non-GMO, organic, all this stuff. They like that. Don't get me wrong. It's like a table stakes. They check it at the store. What they cared about was the drama, was the entertainment, was the added value to their life. And when we started capturing that and seeing that, we're like, hey, this media angle needs to be able to capture these characters into the right format and actually build on them. So there needs to be a strategy to it. It can't just be like, let's create content for promotion and promoting product. We rarely promote our product in terms of actually selling it, right? And I think 5% of our content is selling, 95 is storytelling of actual like the business. And yeah, we realized that and then we invested in that. And then the people that came on board for that were specifically thinking more like a TV producer rather than a performance marketer or a traditional marketer, retail marketer, right? And that worked. Again, the return on the investment, it's hard to look at. But what I could tell you is the business is growing and our content goes up, right? So there's a correlation of something working that we don't have an exact pinpoint, but we don't look at KPIs. We look at, are we building more fans? Or are we not building more fans? And how I tell about fans is, do people love engaging with our brand? Do they talk to us as friends? Do they act like as if they're a family member? Do they have an obsession, a culty-like behavior with us? If so, we're doing something right. If not, we're doing something wrong. And I took this from entertainment world. I looked at the entertainment world and I looked at the music industry and I said, all these artists, yes, they're singing songs and they're selling records, but they're telling a story. They're hyping people up. They're going on this media. They're doing these tours. They're doing these things to then sell records and merchandise. We're doing the same thing, but selling chocolate bars instead of records. So how we do it is we build this content. We tell the story. We go out there and speak at schools, at conferences, at offices. We make it as if we're acting like artists. But again, our selling point is a chocolate bar to support us, not buying a, you know, a concert ticket or a t-shirt from, you know, a concert. So that's the approach. And that's how we're thinking. So we don't think CPG or food and beverage. We think, how do we think entertainment and TV producer style? 
Yeah, brands that get caught up in looking for KPIs on every single dollar spent really could never succeed at doing this because they're going to start saying, oh, well, we put this Instagram post out, this TikTok video. How many dollars of revenue was generated from this post on Facebook? And that's completely not the way to do it. So no. how do you... like? I mean, this is sort of a tough question, but over the course of months, quarters, and, and a year or two, how do you start to evaluate whether or not content... Or let's just say content will pay off as a whole. But how do you decide even, hey, this kind of content works, this kind of stuff is not resonating? So the, the team looks at like, okay, did the video perform? It's not so much did it get a million views or 200,000 views or 10 views. It's more of how did it make the people that engage with it feel? And we do that by watching the comments. We do that by watching the responses to the videos to us. And if it did that, and if it made us internally feel something deep, then we actually continue that type of content. So it's not just like, okay, we're going to chase trends or we're going to chase, you know, what's hot on TikTok or YouTube or whatever. No, our goal is we are building a chocolate company and we're not veering from this. We've, we basically are telling the story of how we build this to a hundred million and then how we build it to a billion. So the hundred million will be via social media. The hundred to a billion will hopefully be on a docu-series showing the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's why we have 35 terabytes of actual content from day one that has happened in this business from firing people to raising money, to legal battles, to um, machine breakdowns, building the facility, anything you could imagine that could give TV producer the way to go build the whole docu-series on this, right? And for us, the goal is not to do it after the fact. It's to show everything during the fact, if we make it or we fail, right? So I think that that's what led to our success is having all this content, having the B-roll, having the ability to create the content. But the way we test it is solely how we feel and how our consumers feel from it or our fans. So you mentioned you have 65 employees. How many of those people are doing content? And what does the content team look like? It's a small team and it's short staff on that team. So they're, they're actually, they need to build more. They're up to their head right now. And they're four, 65, 40 are in manufacturing. So actually built making our products, right? So that, you know, make our delicious bars and do a great job. The rest is in ops, finance, a bit of sales, software engineers. So the media team eventually over time will be the one that's funded the highest, but it's not there yet. We're just not there. We're still in our phase of growth that we need the ops to kick in. The margin needs to kick in a higher rate faster and the manufacturing needs to get under control. If that's not under control, there's no reason to have a media company with it. So we're, it's a balancing act right now. But I'd say if, you, if we were to talk in two, three years from now, the media team will be a lot bigger and it would just be editors, videographers, and TV producer leading it. So just consistently telling different stories. One editor for YouTube, one editor for Instagram, one for TikTok, and then showrunners that run around and then a team producer that leads the whole thing. Four is still pretty good though. I mean, four is a lot of people working full-time and you said they're over their head. So they must be, be cranking out a lot of content right now. They're trying. So like some of these videos are taking long. So like, you know, for example, some of our TikToks take one, one a week we try to do. We would like to be at two minimum. Every day on Instagram, there's, there's a video that goes up of the day-to-day more or less that's happened, small little recaps. And then, yeah, like we create content for LinkedIn specifically. Like there's a lot of content that goes out, but they're up to here because they don't want to just release content for the sake of releasing content. They want to make you feel something and actually add some sort of value, whether it's an emotion, education, or certain amount of information, right? So it's tough. I'm telling you, man, we, we, we slowed down in terms of the amount that we're pumping out because of the quality we wanted. We want. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always a fine balance because like you said, like two TikToks a week, there are some... I mean, and if that works for you, that's awesome. And there are some brands that, that are doing three or four a day and the quality is completely different. They're not going to be able to put out a masterpiece every single time. 
yeah, you, but that's the problem. So like we were trying to, we're trying to hit masterpieces every time. And I don't mean by chasing trend again, I mean, really great storytelling. And they usually reward us like on our last 52 videos on TikTok, I think like 40 of them have done over hundred K organic views. And some, you know, I think 10 of them have gone over a million up to 15 million. So it's crazy to see if you put good content out, most of the time it will reward you, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And and we still keep that content out there because it's so good. Yeah, I'm checking it out right now. I mean, hundreds of thousands, and in some cases, millions and millions of views on your videos. This is, this is awesome. And some views get 20, 30,000 too, but like those videos are actually good quality videos. So it's like, it just didn't hit, right? But it hit on the people that did watch it. It's so true. And the other thing, and I mean, you're in the consumer space, so maybe it's different for, you know, when, when you're selling B2B or high ticket, but even the pieces of content that don't do well from a views or engagement perspective, they might go deeper down the funnel and they actually cause more buying activity, but they don't yep. go quite as viral. Yep. And like for us to think about it, you could go support us after watching that any of our videos for $2 and 49 cents at any of your local retailers or whatever. So you think about it, like if you just watch the video and you hate us, okay, good. Don't, that's fine. If you love us, you're like, Oh shit, I want to buy this product. Next thing you're at your Walmart or you're at your whole foods or wherever you are. And you're like, Oh wow, here's the brand I just saw. I love them. Boom. Buy it. So then you're supporting, you're becoming, that's how you, you continuously give us a chance to keep growing. Right? So it's very easy. It's not a high ticket item where you're selling $700 item or a thousand dollar item it's very easy to opt in and then basically our goal is to get you to watch one video and then watch a rabbit hole of many other ones so we try to work you in we also had a podcast that was going hot for two two seasons but we just didn't have the time and we'll hopefully get back into it it was one of the top actually like food and beverage podcasts and it was just about the how we build the business and it was a round table chat and again content you need editing you need all this skills and you could outsource it but the way we wanted it was internal the way we wanted our voices to be heard and, and sounds so we just had to stop for now and i think that that's where like we realized that when things are going well in the content the business is flying when things are falling apart on that end it's slowing down but when you, we need to focus on our we still are a chocolate manufacturer that, that built a factory that has to hit its margin that has venture money in it so you still got to think about all those things, right? At the same time as the media-driven shit that takes a lot, you know, in my opinion, a lot of time and effort and energy. Quick break while I tell you about DemandScope. This is my new agency where we help you blow up your social media so you can blow up your income. DemandScope works with entrepreneurs and business owners to develop their personal brands across LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and beyond, using the power of personal brand building to drive your business forward in a big way. It's time to turn your social media feed into a customer acquisition engine. Learn more at demandscope.co. That's demandscope.co. If you could be on one channel, like if there was one workhorse channel, whether it was email or TikTok or YouTube or whatever, which would you choose? I think down the line, I'd like to be on YouTube. We're not on YouTube. So right now we're TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, powerful, Facebook, I guess as well. But again, YouTube is something that we can create longer form content that is kind of like bi-weekly episodes potentially, which would be cool. And yeah, that would be a dream. But we just, again, don't have the the power right now, human capital in terms yeah. to, to bang it out. So it's on hold. Okay. I want to ask you, you, you got onto my radar. There's a headline, March of 2022, and you created a diss track uh, <laughs> that was covered by Business Insider around Hershey. So can you talk about this whole legal battle and kind of what you thought about it behind the scenes and then and then how you reacted to it? Oh yeah, that was, that was whack. So basically long story short, early on Hershey actually came to us, their M&A team and wanted to 
do a deal with us. And for us, we, we're not trying to sell the company right now. We're actually trying to see what it looks like, how we build it long-term, right? And after great conversations, big fan of the brand, we politely said, we're not interested in this. And two months later, I think it was two months, I can't remember exact dates, but 40 days, I don't know what the dates, but two months later, it was, we got a season assist letter from them saying, Hershey's saying that we can no longer use the color orange, but it was totally fine before. And you can't use the color orange for the peanut because people are confusing Reese's with midday squares and it's basically causing all confusion. And we are like, okay, we have two options here. We either go to court and fight them and we could potentially win the case. We weren't the same color orange. We were a different shade of it. But that would take two to five years, potentially, and millions of dollars of wasted time and energy. Or we just change the package and move on like everybody else does and settle that off and, and, and forget about it, right? So our third option was <laughs> do the second thing, change the color slightly, get them to approve it, and then blow this up on social media <laughs> where we basically show the good... Because we, we film everything, we have the content, right? So we did that. And then people started talking like, oh my God, David versus Goliath, chocolate gone crazy, all this stuff. And then to go even one step further after that, we're like, instead of spending the millions of dollars, why don't we go spend $70,000 to make a diss track to show her she's, we don't really care to be you at all. We are our own company and you'll never be able to do something like this because it's not authentic to you. And we launched this track. That's the song, my name, Hi, My Name is What by Eminem. And it was a parody and it was hilarious because it ended up getting picked up all over the media. The US people loved it. We ended up launching way more products in the US and killing it. And to this day, a lot of people bring that up to our brand and say, this was so fun. This was so different and disruptive. And I think that that's where content and storytelling becomes a tool through different situations, whether it's raising money, legal battles, you know, hiring, whatever you want to do, content and storytelling can be a great tool to use that could save your company, can make your company. And we learned that lesson. So now we just use the tool for everything, like literally every type of scenario that comes in, we figure a way to incorporate the content and storytelling into it. That's so freaking awesome. Okay, I've got I've got 100 questions, but just two more questions on this. So when you do something like that, when you're sitting in the room with your co-founders making that kind of decision, are you consulting a lawyer? Are you worried about ramifications? Or are you like, no, 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 we're clean, we're good to go? So we usually do consult a lawyer if it's very bold. That being said, we take it with a grain of salt. So you know, our, our legal team told us it was it was a bit on the black line, a little too much. And they're like, just don't do it. But Again, as an entrepreneur, you follow your gut, you take some risks, you want to be bold. And bold usually, fortune does favor bold typically, good or bad, but you're an outlier at least. You're not You're not an average. So for us, we do take the advice, but we don't always follow it. I think that's the key. And I think take that, the advice, don't follow it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, listen to the ramifications because it's good to know what can happen, but do what you truly believe is is the best choice and what you feel, what your gut's telling you. And what do your investors say about this? I mean, obviously, this was in March 2022. I guess you had already raised money. What do you consult them or what do they say? We didn't consult them. We love them. We control our board still, which is good. So we can do things, but they know who we are and they know that we're not a typical food and beverage company that's going to stay quiet and we're trying to be an outlier, right? So that's what they invested in for us. So they respect it. Obviously, they'll give their opinion on if it's dangerous. And again, we listen. If, if it makes sense, then we'll follow it. If it doesn't, then we go do what we got to do. And um, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, if there, hopefully, there's more action in the future that we can keep sharing good stories from different bold decisions. Was this the biggest story, like piece of content story that you ever did? Were there other kind of big mega things that, that took off based on sort of a real life event that you blew up on social? Not as big as that because Hershey's is the big chocolate player. 
that being said, you never, it, they're going to come because we, we do do a little couple crazy things and we'll just replay the best strategy that we'll have at the time. Right. So I'm not saying we're going to do a diss track, but you know, we might do something completely out, something completely different because at least we are authentic. We're authentic. I know it's, it's a buzzword, but we're truly authentically ourselves unapologetically. And, and the moment we stop doing that, being ourselves is the moment that we failed. And that's the moment we probably leave the business. So, so you'll see always whatever comes at us, we'll, we'll keep going. But there has definitely been real events that have happened that we've used, but not as big, I would say. And what about the sort of vendors? So you're, you're dealing with Costco and, and Loblaws and whoever else, Walmart or whoever. Are they responding to you when this happens? Or do, do you hear from them? Yes and no. Some love it. Some think it's disgusting. You know, again, you got to imagine for us, you know, Hershey's has big contracts with a lot of these, these grocery stores, right? You got to be careful sometimes too, because there's deals that are on the sidelines that they have to monitor and follow. But again, it's like, if you're really behaving like that, then why go into business in the first place? Like, you know, if you're scared to, if you're walking on eggshells because you're scared, then you're not going to go anywhere. And I think that that's something that, you know, we're proud of. We've not walked on eggshells. We've learned how to just step on them. And if we get cut up, we get cut up. If we don't, then let's keep riding the horse. You know, that's the game that we're playing. I love it. Do you remember, did you hear about that time? I think Beyonce performed at the Super Bowl and there were some photos and she, her team asked not to run. Is this ringing the bell? No, I don't know. So you're going to love this. So this was BuzzFeed and Beyonce was at the Super Bowl. I don't know what year this was, maybe 2013 or something. And there were a bunch of photos that BuzzFeed had taken that Beyonce asked not to run. And I'm not sure if BuzzFeed had taken them or the Associated Press or whatever. And so BuzzFeed did an article. Here are the 17 photos that Beyonce asked the press not to release. And they did a whole thing. And it was like, just so you know, and it was amazing. And I'm sure Beyonce like never talked to BuzzFeed ever again, but like it was worth it. It was worth it. It's hype. It's hype. Totally, totally. So I want to talk about the um, about the actual business side. So obviously, you guys are absolute champions on the content, and you're you're doing things totally differently. How hard is it to run a chocolate business? Very difficult. So that's the hardest part. So building and scaling. We're refrigerated chocolate bar, so we are in the cold chain supply. So we're in the cold chain of supply chain. So. It's been very hard. You know, we had to build our factory and not a lot of companies have to do that. They could co-manufacture, third-party manufactured, send it, and then just do sales and marketing as a company. But we have an innovation that none of the co-managers were able to actually make. So for us, our whole idea was, let's build this factory, let's scale it on this theoretical. It was all theory. It wasn't, it wasn't like a proven concept. And now we're dealing with it, you know, hitting a certain margin, getting to the right place, having venture money, which means a time limit and building, right? So balancing high growth with the right margin profile, because if you go too high, you'll lose too much money. And if you don't, you know, you won't hit your right growth metrics. So it's been the hardest thing. Like, you know, we're still struggling with the manufacturing four and a half years later. It's not perfect. It's like 90% there. But, you know, for us, that has been the most of the suck that's the resources getting sucked is all into that when it should be eventually going into the media, the storytelling, the fandom, the retail marketing with the retailers. But we've put almost little to no effort and resources into that. And I think that that's something that we're looking forward to after this year will be profitable this year. So that'll be a big change up for the company. But that's been the hardest part is scaling this business while working on the distribution, the supply chain with the cold side and, and building from there. I think that's Again, you have limited spots in grocery stores and it's owned by 12 brands that own 80%. So there's really limited space. 
And how do you guys internally divide up responsibilities? So you've got two other co-founders. Are each of you taking sort of a big section of the business? Yeah, so we're a third, a third, a third, but they co my sister and my brother-in-law co-CEOs. They actually love ops. They love manufacturing. They love building. Me, I do not like any of that. I focus on network. Building the midday squares network and the brand. So focusing on getting people to feel something, I guess the fandom, let's call it. And when you put all these things together, it actually equals one, right? Because it's like a tripod. Because you need both. You can't just have a margin profile or an operation without the hype and the fandom and the and the craziness that builds the feeling into the consumer. So if you have just the feeling of the consumer and the product's not good and the, ma- the manufacturing doesn't make sense, you're going to fail. So that's how we separate the business. Something unique that we do as partners is we see a business coach, business therapist once uh, a week together to work on our issues, on on hard conversations, on different things we're going through. And that's been the best investment we've made to date. Really, a, a business coach. So, what what kind of like I've I've heard of these. I've never actually taken part in anything. But is it that you like they're they're mediating problems or figuring out bottlenecks? Mix of both. For us, because they're delicate relationships, you know, they're married, and um, it's my sister, my sister, my brother in law. We focus on making sure that our relationship is very strong. Our trust is very, is very powerful and um, that we're still aligned on a lot of things. So we do that. We spend about 50 K a year on, on therapy. It's, it's a therapist. It's not a, we call it a business coach, but it's a therapist and it saved us from not killing each other or not losing each other as family. So I think that a lot of founders should, whether you're family or not, should invest in this profile just from a communication standpoint, learning how to properly communicate and you know speak hard conversations with your partners is the best way to protect your business. Did you do that because you were having problems or was it reactive before problems started? Well, it was proactive in proactive. the sense that before we started the business, we did it day one, but my brother-in-law had had experienced partners that he he had problems with. So he was going to a coach, the same therapist before dealing with those things. Right. So he said, the only way that I could join in as the third partner is if I agreed to coming to therapy once a week. Wow. That's an interesting uh, condition, but I, listen, it works. I mean, that, that sort of thing can, can definitely sort of put you ahead of where you might have otherwise been because you have all these issues bottling up and clogging yep. the workflow. And, uh, and this just kind of wipes that away. 100%. Are you are you guys public with, with your numbers? Yes. So can you, can, can you kind of share where you are today? Yeah. So we're in about 4,500 stores. This year, we're, we're looking to do about 30, 26 to $30 million in revenue. We will be profitable shortly, which is exciting. We have the opportunity to go into about 60,000 stores. So right now we're in 4,500. We have the opportunity to go into about 60,000 between Canada and the United States. And our whole idea is to be tight skew count, you know, not a lot of products, and win that, get to that 100 million in the next two years, three years, maybe max, and then keep going from there. And then hopefully, you know, maybe launch new product lines after that, maybe build more, acquire businesses, maybe go public. But um, yeah, that, that's the goal. And, you know, we're likely going to raise some money in about 12 months. And that would be probably one of the, the, the final raises. And what about the separation between going to retail and going D2C? Because it looks like you're selling on your website. Do you want to build that, that side of the business? No, we're 30% D2C, 70% retail. And we like to keep it at that balance. And why is that? Is that I'm, I'm sure there's some uh, rationale behind that. Refrigerated chocolate's hard to ship. The volume that companies like you know Target, Walmart, Whole Foods can put in at once is, is very profitable for us. 
they pick up in, in pallets, not in one box. So it's a big difference. We use the online as a way to have for our loyal base, but also for like, try, if, if somebody finds it and wants to try, but they still have to order a lot at first. So it's more just there for the sake of being there. I think that at one point we were 100% D2C when we started, and then we were about 50% during COVID. But then we realized that the unit economics don't make as much sense on the D2C side. So at the 30 point mark, it makes a lot of sense. So you're somebody, you're sitting on a company that's doing tens of millions in revenue in traditional retail and e-commerce. What do you think got you from kind of zero to to 30 million? Or you can divide that up if you want from like zero to 10 to uh, 10 to 30. And then what do you think is going to take you from 30 to 100? So I think most definitely what got us to here today is is great storytelling and product market fit. So we did it very startup-y. We were scrappy. We scrapped, we hustled, we worked hard to just, you know, bang that out and build a fan base that wants to buy this product specifically. And we built a product that was innovation so that there wasn't a lot of innovation within our set. So data was, the product wasn't just built on, you know, thin air. It was actually, we had data from the chocolate space and the plant-based protein space. And we were just making a baby of these two massive growth categories. But from a standpoint of what's going to happen in the future is, is strategic distribution and strategic execution at store level and merchandising. So right now we're playing a different strategy where we're running the playbook in store as, you know, having our own merchandising team do it instead of hiring people and all the, you know, hiring third parties to do all this stuff and relying on our distributors. So we're taking a different approach to all data driven. It's run by software engineers, not salespeople. And it's working right now in Canada. We're going to keep applying it and see the, how the data goes in the next year. And then how we really grow from like, let's say 75 million to you know, three, 400 million, hopefully down the line is hopefully through traditional TV, actually, uh, like streaming platforms. Like I said, HBO Prime, we want a Netflix series or an HBO series on the road to a billion, you know, and how we built the uh, chocolate empire and showing literally everything, real life, not recreated, right? So I think that that would be a great way to win big in terms of, you know, building more fandom through that because you're seeing more and more docuseries come out about brands, individuals, but they're recreating the stuff rather than having the stuff. One group that did it well was the Last Dance uh, docuseries, Michael Jordan. That sold a lot of Jordan products, like a lot. Yeah, yeah. But you really have to think ahead. I mean, it's one thing if you're Michael Jordan and you're, and you're documenting yes. the Bulls. Obviously, that's going to be a wor- you know worthy of, of the diary. But in your case, it was really a smart way to think ahead to say, hey, you know, even though we're at zero today, we're going to be a billion and we, and we want to document the story from here to yes. there. Exactly. It's like seeing those early Bezos photos of him in the office that says Amazon behind him. Like That's, that's what you want to see right, right now. Yep. yep. This is the game. That's the game. Yeah. So what what's it like running a business out of Montreal and out of Canada, selling to the US? And obviously, you want to sell the US and globally. Is staying in Canada a strategic thing? Is it just kind of convenience? We're from here. We love, the, we love where we live. I think it's getting harder and harder. I think Canada is a great country and there's great people that live here. I think that the boldness isn't there. The, you know, we're funded mostly i think 85 percent by american which is sad we couldn't get canadian money we tried other than the government lending us money you did know, you try we tried we tried no one wanted to take the uh, risk so i think Canada needs to get more risk and hopefully we could be that brand that shows that the risk pays off again we're keeping everything in canada right now but you never know where that goes right so we want to we want to, you know, Canada has some big businesses like Saputo for dairy cheese they have like the toronto raptors like the maple leafs you know organization stuff like that but we want to make a like i said like hershey's for 
United States is the, their fa- their fan favorite chocolate. Like it's something they're proud of Nike for Oregon. Like we want to do the same thing for, for chocolate here in, in Montreal, but we'll see how everything plays out from what's going on in Canada, how we're shipping the logistical stuff, everything that, and the funding as well. So that's going to be the next five years, the decision in the next five years. Yeah, there's definitely operational benefits to staying in Canada, but I've had conversations with all the VCs in Canada, all all the big funders, and the reality is, as much as they say they want business, you know, just to to stay in Canada to be owned by Canadians, at the end of the day, if they're not going to step up to the plate and take those risks, of course we're going to go to the U.S. because that's that's where the money is. Yep, one hundred percent. And so. If you could sort of give all the entrepreneur listeners right now something that you're thinking about, you're obviously at a point where pe- that a lot of people would love to be at, as I said, tens of millions in sales, this brand that kind of everyone knows, creating a lot of buzz. What's something that you're thinking about right now that you want to get better at, either as a company or, or yourself? I think getting hires right is definitely a big thing. So like hiring better is definitely one that we, we're not great at. I think also getting the media brand back to its consistency. So the media component, we want to get it back to the producing more consistently quality content. And then the third thing is, is if we could just continue to do this strategic merchandising plan uh, from a retail, the, the, the re-merchandising, having the, the data run the sales rather than salespeople running sales. I think that's a big thing that we're changing and it's working. And I hope that we can continue to do this and show this model to other businesses down the line that they could use it, right? Because I think it's old school, the food and beverage world and the distribution model, it's old school. It doesn't work. It's outdated and it's limiting for small businesses. So hopefully we could be that business that shows that this is possible. A new way was possible and the disruption of it actually has a positive outcome. When you say data running sales instead of people running sales, what do you mean exactly? So I mean like everything's run by like running analysis on the previous stuff, on the store levels, on the manager relationships. Like I'm talking like data points put into obviously someone that's analyzing it and basically saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's this XYZ, go to this store, merchandise here. We need two spots. Rather than being like, hey, let's get these distributions. Let's do the promo planning. Let's, let's, let's do demos in store. Like that's not the game. You know, the game is understand where the volume is going to be. Give it 80% of the resources and everything else burns, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, when you're following the data, you can be a lot more ruthless because at the end of the day, it it doesn't lie. And it's probably going to be a much better indicator than just someone's gut. Oh, yeah, I've been doing this for 15 years. Like, okay, but the data says this. Exactly. Well, man, this was a lot. Uh, I I feel like like people are going to have their brains blown by all the stuff that you're doing. And the fact that you got four people on your content team is actually mind-boggling because I'm looking at your stuff and I'm like, you must have an army on this. Four people (laughs) are, are some serious high performers. They're great. They're great people. They're unbelievable. All right, right, take where can we find you and, and where can we find more about, about Midday Squares? So follow me on LinkedIn, Jake Carls. Happy to engage. If you want to chat, DM me, message me, whatever you want to call it. Midday Squares on TikTok, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Great storytelling on there. And then if you want to find us in stores in the US, Target, Whole Foods, Sprouts, Fresh Time, many more stores always located in the refrigerated section in Canada, Walmart, Sobeys, Metro, Whole Foods. Longos, many other stores. Just check on our website, www.middaysquares.com. Awesome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.